right? And this series we're about to start here is really a springboard off that Easter message that Jesus is risen, he's risen indeed. And that means everything to us as Christians, that when we live in that faith, when we live in that realization that Jesus now becomes the center of our lives. And we're studying this book of Colossians that, as Steph just said, really comes to that realization over and over again. There's none greater than Jesus. And when we understand that Jesus is at the center of everything we do, our life kind of falls in place. Everything in our life falls in place. But when we stray away from that idea, troubles begin. So the series is really meant to be heavy on application. What does it mean to live the Jesus-centered life? To have Christ at the center of all you do and, and all you are. And today, specifically, we're going to be uh, looking at Christ-centered growth. And what that means is when you become a Christian, it's not a one-time event. It's something when you place your faith in Christ, you're given a whole new life and you begin to develop into a, a new person with new virtues, new characteristics. And it's Christ's work in you. When you live with Jesus at the center, you grow. And it's not about us, as I said. It's not an inward focus, but an outward focus of what Jesus is doing in each and every one of us. And, and the Christian life starts in the same place for every believer. It's hearing and understanding the gospel of Jesus. That's how we all come into faith with him, is knowing what he has done. And when we have a focus on that gospel, now we understand it's what, what God is doing in you, what the risen Savior is doing in your life. Now, throughout this book, we're going to be talking a lot about this church of Colossae. We're going to be talking about the context of why this letter was written. Uh, he is certainly offering much encouragement to them, but he's also addressing a lot of false teachings. And that's where we see this constant theme of Jesus being superior in every way. Because they were bombarded with these teachings as, well, Jesus might be good, but there's also this other thing that's, that's better. Or also this other thing that will add to your faith in Jesus. And the struggle this church was facing is not much different than the struggle we face as a church today. That there's a lot of voices in our lives. There's a lot of input and a lot of values that are thrown at us that we might think at times that Jesus is maybe just part of our lives. But the message over and over again is that Jesus is central, and Jesus is all. We don't need any more than him. No supplements, nothing can add to him, and, and no substitutions, nothing can take the place of Christ. So as we read this today, I think it's really looking at that, that foundation of our faith, our growth in Jesus, and what makes us into the Christians that you are today. It's all about Jesus. So before we read the text today, let's just take a time to pray, uh, pray for this message to really resonate in us. And if this is something any of us haven't understood at this point, it's crucial that we understand that every foundation and every important part of growth is in Jesus. So pray with me before we begin today. So God, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are risen from the grave, that you came to uh, the cross to pay for our sins. And Jesus, that you rose from the grave to offer us new life in you. So I pray today that as we understand this reality in our lives played out day by day, situation by situation, that all we need to grow is you, that you are the center of our lives. And so I pray, God, that we would grow in you today 
And, and while we're praying, God, I do just, uh, we're mindful of those among us who uh, need those bits of prayer. Uh, we think about uh, Mona and Paul Bergstrom and Ian, uh, just lost, Mona just lost her father. So we pray for that family and the funeral yesterday, uh, God, that you just continue to be uh, working in them, comforting them, giving them peace in this time. And, and also others, Patty, uh, who lost her, uh, her father as well. And so, God, we just pray uh, or her mother. We pray, God, that you would just be comforting them. All of us who are experiencing that, that kind of grief or loss, especially in a season like Easter, God, I just pray that you'd give us your peace. But now as we focus on this, uh, this text, this, um, this holy word, God, I just pray you'd be speaking into our lives through your spirit, that we can grow closer to you in this. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're not already open to the book of Colossians, we're going to read just the first part of it, the first 14 verses, Colossians 1, uh, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven about, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I read a verse like that or a passage like that, I'm really encouraged. It's such an encouraging thing to note that Paul, the apostle, is recognizing all the good work that's happening in these people of Colossae. And he's taking a moment to encourage them. He's never met these people, but he's writing them this letter. And he's showing that he sees in them the evidence of their Christian growth. And the first thing he does is, is be thankful for them and express to them that he's thankful that they are having this faith in Jesus, that they heard of this gospel and they've responded to it. Now, as we think about Christian growth, what it means to be mature in Christ, in Christ, Paul actually gives us an example up front that's kind of a subtext 
of the text. Now, the reason he's writing this letter to the Colossians is to address these false teachings that have crept into the church. But we see that he doesn't address that right away. He takes a time to be thankful and encourage them in the positive things he is seeing in them. And we see here that the, the application is that Christians should always have a greater concern for the people than their problems. Paul is a guy with all authority in the gospel, and he could have easily just started right into the issues and gave them a laundry list of the problems that they needed to change. But instead, he begins with this prayer, this prayer of encouragement for them. And this whole thing we read, starting from verse 3 to 14, is actually a really long prayer. This is common for Paul to start his letters this way. And he recognizes in them the evidence of their growth and takes this time to encourage them. And he says that he's always thanking God for them, meaning this is not just a one-time situation. This is persistent for him. This is a pattern that he's thanking God for these believers. What's especially amazing, as, as I said before, is that he's never met these believers. He's only heard reports about them through his friend Epaphras. But this, is, this idea of having this concern for people first rather than the problems is something we don't often see in our world because more often than not, we see people as problems. And we forget that the, the church is built on relationships. It's built on redemption. And that Christians should always be viewing people as the most important asset of the church. Now, make no mistake, he addressed all these false teachings they were going through throughout the letter. But he did it in a way that was giving them truth that was, uh, that was, truth, uh, that was measured with grace. There was grace along this truth as, as he gave it to them. But this is so different from the world we live in today. See, we live in this cancel culture world where if someone does one thing wrong that you just pretend they never existed. They, they get them out of your life. And we see that even in the church, that if there's a Christian, or even worse, if there's a teacher who has one false, uh, one false idea, that nothing they ever said is good to you anymore. That's not what Paul is doing here. And I think we need to take great care to ensure that Christians are living in the truth. But we have to approach them with grace and with dignity, knowing that they are a person. And that relationships are key. See, unfortunately, the greatest wounds that Christians incur in this world is often from other Christians. We have to always approach these things with grace. Paul is taking a moment to thank them, to be thankful for them, to be joyful with them that they've made this step. And now that they are veering off course a little bit, he's encouraging them. He's not trying to win the battle against them. He's to win them for the truth. And so he's building this relationship with them. People and relationships are always the most important aspect of Christ-centered growth and for the church. Always be more concerned for people than their problems. And now after this time of being thankful for this growth that he's seeing, they're growing in this, this faith and this love, he takes a moment to explain all of the good things, the evidence or the fruit in their lives. And this is what's important is he's seeing these good things budding in their lives, despite the facts that there's some, some intricacies here, some difficulties that they're working through. 
And it's not just a reflection of them, but rather what's happening in them. And he says this faith and this love that spring up from the hope stored in you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Now, Jesus told us, if you want to tell the difference between a real believer and a fake believer, it's a pretty simple test. You just look at the fruit in their lives. What's the evidence? What's the outpouring of their lives? And a growing Christian becomes evident by their fruit. And that's one of the greatest joys for me as a pastor. A lot of times people ask, what do you like most about it? And there's obviously a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of rewards. And one of them is when I, I work with these people who are interested in learning more about Jesus, who are excited about his truth. And, I, and I've worked with these people who, who don't know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. They know anything about, about the knowledge of God. But as they grow in it, you begin to see their lives change. You begin to see this fruit pouring out of them, and it's extremely rewarding. And, and many of you have probably experienced the same things. Maybe as a parent, you see this in your, your kids or your grandparents, seeing it in your grandchildren. Maybe you're discipling a friend or a coworker. But when you begin to see the fruit of their lives displayed, it's exciting. And Paul, again, who doesn't know these people personally, is taking a moment to be excited about the fruit in their life. But this fruit doesn't tell you so much about the person. It tells you about Jesus working in this person. And if you're holding a healthy cluster of grapes, it doesn't speak about the grapes. It speaks about the seed. And in the same way, these cluster of virtues we see here speaks about Jesus working in them. And there's three of them that I'm bolding and underlining here. Faith, love, and hope. These are really the chief virtues or the chief fruit in people's life as a Christian. The Christians will display their fruitful growth in Jesus through their faith, their love, and their hope. Now, this is a trio we see often in the scriptures, especially by Paul, and probably most famously in 1 Corinthians 13, when he explains all the good things we can do in life, all that remain are faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. The greatest of all is love. But these things really show you, when the rubber meets the road, if a Christian is a Christian or not. And what we see here is that faith is not in anything in particular, but faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not just having faith one time in Jesus for salvation. And that's where some people say, I put my faith in Jesus one night back in 1989. Well, that's not a growing Christian. Faith is dynamic, and it's meant to grow with you as you traverse through life. Faith becomes a relationship with Jesus. And it's not this inward, worldly sense of faith where it's just optimism or positive thinking, but it's an outward faith. It's a faith in the person, Jesus, that no matter what you're going through, no matter how painful or difficult or confusing, you know that God is God. And you have a trust in his perfect will. It's looking back on all that God has done for you, namely going to the cross and raising from the dead. That if he did that, he won't fail you now. It's a faith in Christ, which now we see leads to a love that we read in verse 4 for all of God's people. And knowing that if Jesus did that for you, if he showed his love for every person in the world that way, especially the believers, that we're to love them in the same way. 
Now, the world's concept of love is one of convenience. It's one of a self-centered love. Love is something that should serve you. But now in Christ, we see love and love for others as one where we serve them. That it's sacrificial, and it's selfless, and it's indiscriminate. Now that's the hard part for us. We'd love to pick and choose who we can love. But that's not what we read here, that love is for all of God's people. That Christ died for all believers, and so we are to also love all believers. And if Christ died for everyone, how are we to pick and choose who we can love? Faith and love are the evidence of Christian growth. But what we see is that they spring from hope. It starts with hope. Now, this is something we talked about last week on Easter, that the resurrection gives us hope for all things in life. And when we have hope stored up in heaven, what we're, telling, what we're told is that if our hope, if all our hope is in Jesus, Jesus, who went to the cross and rose from the grave, he has now ascended to heaven. So if our hope is in Jesus, our hope went with him to heaven. And now to be stored up in heaven really means to be protected. That it won't be affected in anything we go through in this life. In other words, it's safe. And nothing can touch it there. Nobody's going to march into heaven and steal that hope away from us. And nothing we experience here, no sin, no hardship, no trial, can change or affect our hope. Our hope is secured. And that's the difference, again, between worldly hope, which is, again, wishful thinking, that things would, hope out, would work out against all odds. Hope for a Christian is this bold confidence in God. That what he promises will come true. And that's where this relationship comes into play. What we're told is that we have a covenantial relationship with Jesus. Right? That Jesus, his bride, is the church. And that doesn't mean the church is an institution. That means the church is a people. We are the brides of Christ. And so he's in a relationship that's built on a promise. The highest promise. That he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never abandon us if things get tough. There's nothing greater that he's going to chase after. Jesus loves us so much that he calls us his bride. That's the hope we live with. That's the assurance and the promise is that we're built on a promised relationship with Jesus. And so hope becomes an evidence of our faith. There's no weaker witness as a Christian than to lose hope. Then there for to be hardships around us. In this last year, we've had many. Many things that are confusing. Many things that are difficult. If you want to destroy your witness as a Christian, you lose hope. That's been the hardest part of seeing a lot of those, I, I call them chicken little Christians. <laughs> Look at the sky and say, the sky is falling. It's all over. I know the church has been here for 2,000 years. We, this is too hard for God. It's done. All hope is lost. And I know we wrestle with things in different ways. But the way to show the evidence of your life in Christ is to keep that hope above all else because it's stored, it's secured for you in heaven with Jesus. Nothing can touch him there. 
Now, all of this comes as we read through the true message of the gospel that has come to us. That's the true foundation of it all, is hearing the gospel or the good news of Jesus. This is the foundation for the Colossians. This is the foundation for all of us, is that we hear and understand the gospel. And we did not discover this truth ourselves. It didn't come from anything in the world. It's only the good news the true message of the gospel that has come to us. And that really is the foundation of all Christian growth. As we continue to read in verse 6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. In the same way that the Colossians are growing in their faith, the gospel is growing throughout the world. Just as it had been doing for those believers in the day that they heard it and understood God's grace. We think about the beginning of Christian growth, Christ-centered growth. It starts with hearing the gospel. And this is the starting point for every Christian around the world. That whether you're gathering here or in Africa or in Asia, and throughout all times, it was the same message of the gospel. It is universal and timeless. See, we often think of church in regionalized ways. We think... Uh, sometimes that church is, is this church, but the church is great and it is vast. And the grand movement of God has no borders and no restrictions. It's a universal truth. And as I said, the gospel does not diminish, it does not weaken, it does not change over time. The same gospel we believe today is the same gospel that they believed then. God has never changed and neither has his good news the gospel is the only seed that can be planted anywhere around the world and bear the same fruit. Why? Well, because we don't make it grow. It doesn't depend on us. We may scatter the seed of God's good word, but only God can make it grow. And every Christian around the world started by hearing the gospel. But it's not just hearing it, but is hearing it and understanding it as you read. That a Christian must hear the gospel and truly understand God's grace. If it's as simple as just sharing the good news around the world, we, I'm sure we could develop a technology to do that, but every person must understand what the gospel says and understand the grace of God that comes with it. Well, the first part of hearing is that, that it must be shared. And that's our duty as Christians, that everyone has the ability to share the gospel message. As we read in Romans 10, that's how this whole thing works. Is that how then can one call if they have not believed in God? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? And how can anyone tell them unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that's not our duty, but that's our privilege as Christians, is that when we are overjoyed in the gospel and know what it does in our lives, we have the ability to share that with others. Everyone must hear the gospel. And if you are a Christian today, it's because someone shared the gospel with you. You weren't born into it. You didn't stumble upon it. Someone shared the gospel with you, and you heard it. But next, you understood 
God's grace through the gospel. Now, we deserve none of what Jesus did for us. To be clear, we can never truly understand the fullness of God's grace. As you try to understand it, it, it kind of blows your mind that God would do what he did when we truly didn't deserve it. Grace in itself is unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is escaping what we do deserve. But this is hard to understand in our culture where we live in a transa transactional society that, that you give and you receive. We think that if we can give enough to God, we can receive salvation, but that's not how it works. We live in a justice-censored society that, that we're owed certain things, but we're not owed salvation. We live in a, a society that's also pretty entitled to certain freedoms that if you exist, that you deserve heaven. But that's not how it works either. The gospel only has power in your life if you truly understand the grace that comes with it. That God gives us heaven when we deserve hell. That he grants us forgiveness when we deserve to be forgotten. That he offers us life when we deserve death. That all of the gospel is grace. And it's unending grace. None of the good things from God are earned in our lives. That everything is a gift, but especially the gospel. Now, when you understand that, the gospel has power in your lives. Your heart is softened to accept the word of God. It's God's act of love and grace for the world. That when we adequately understand that, we recognize this truth. It takes root in our heart and it begins to bear fruit. And we're compelled to share this. Now, verses 7 and 8 talk about this man, Epaphras, that we don't know much about. We know that it was a, a, a partner of Paul's, but we often think that Paul single-handedly built the whole church in the first century. It was a large network of people. It was some who were commissioned and it was some who were just everyday normal people who shared this gospel, and it had a much more profound impact than they ever could have thought, and it started these large churches. That's where we understand that we are given this same, uh, the same idea, that we are to connect others with God in our church, that we're to present them with the gospel so they may understand this truth, this grace of God. And so much of what we do is built around this premise of, of sharing this gospel, this good news. The outreach we have, inviting people to church and, and Bible studies and small groups, our VBS in the summer, our missions program that has missionaries all over the world sharing this gospel. It's the relationships you built with your, your neighbors and your coworkers, being parents and instilling these truths into your children. All we do is to share the gospel of God. Now, for this reason, we read that they have received this gospel since the day Paul had heard about them, they had not stopped praying for them. And this is what's really important here is that he's praying for these people that generally, gen, generally are doing well. And this is Paul who is generally doing pretty poorly. He's in prison when he's writing this letter. And you would think that most of his prayers would be for himself and his situation. But he says here that, since I've heard about you, I have not stopped praying 
for you. And he's praying now that they would continue to grow spiritually, that their lives would be pleasing to God. And so you understand that when Jesus is at the center of your life, and you experience that great joy, you want nothing more than for others to experience the same. And so Paul is lifting them up in prayer. Lifting up other Christians in prayer is vital to their spiritual growth. It's vital to the growth of the church. And that's why we have opportunities like this Thursday morning at 7 a.m. I spoke a couple weeks ago about how a lot of the area churches, we want to get together and we want to pray with other Christians, people we may not even know, but they are followers of Christ. And we can build each other up in this way. So this Thursday at 7 a.m., we're going to meet here at this church. And in the bulletin, you'll see uh, a schedule over the next uh, few weeks. Every Thursday, we're going to different churches in the area. And I went last week to West Point, and it's just a group of about 15 people. And it was just a beautiful time to come together in unity and in prayer for our uh, churches. So I invite you to come this week for that. But I do... I think it brings up an important question for us, and that's, that's our prayer life. When you pray, what do you pray for? Who do you pray for? And if God answered yes to every single prayer you offered, would the kingdom of God be different? Would people's lives be changed? Would it be only your own? Now, I think we need to bring all things to God. And I think the things we're going through, we definitely need to be praying about. That's what God asks us to do. But this is important to be praying for those around you as well. And not just those doing well or doing poorly, but maybe those doing well as well. They become prime targets, I think, for many battles. But this is the importance of keeping those lists, to be asking people how you can pray for them. And that, that really is one of the most humbling things for me, is when you guys ask me, how can I pray for you? Well, you tell me, I've been praying for you. And I know that any pastor is only as, uh, only as successful as the church that prays for them. And it's true of every person in the faith that we need to be praying for each other and lifting each other up. But now as he continues in this prayer for the Colossians, we get to these characteristics of Christian growth. He starts praying for things very specifically. He transitions from this thanksgiving into really a prayer of intercession for these other believers. And this is by no means a comprehensive list, but these are definitely indicators of Christ-centered growth in your life. And the first is spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we read in verse 9 that uh, Paul's praying, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We understand this is wisdom, this is understanding that's different than anything that the world will tell you. But this is what the Spirit reveals to you in His truth. And the first part of that prayer is that the believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this is not just a simple acknowledgement that God has a will, but to be filled with it means to be at full capacity or in some ways that it controls you. That the will of God would be a controlling influence in their life and cause them to do things they may not naturally do. Now, the worldly example is that the chief force of the universe is what you feel and what you desire. That what you feel becomes your truth in the center of your world. 
But now we see that Paul is praying for them to be filled with God's will, that there's something apart from them that should drive and impact their life. And we know that to bow down to God's will is to die to yourself. And to be filled with his will means you have a greater force and purpose in your life than what you personally feel and desire. But ultimately, a mature Christian is one who has their desires aligned with God's will. And there's a process to get there. But it comes through spiritual wisdom and understanding. And wisdom is really just applying knowledge in your life. It's knowledge in action. It's the ability to apply God's will through the various life situations you might have. And understanding is really about our perception or our understanding of the world, how you see it, that we can draw proper conclusions to what's happening around us. When you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, then the Spirit gives you wisdom and understanding. And it's not just for the elite and the prestigious. It's not for those who have the PhD in theology. It's for every believer. And we can make efforts to know God's will, and that's the importance of studying his word and being in prayer. But all these insights are available and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And we're given this knowledge so that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And we see that lived out in a few ways. One of them is that we bear good or we bear fruit in every good work. And Naturally, the church, the evangelical church especially, kind of talks about good works in, in, in a passing way. We, we, we often gloss over it because we don't want people to be confused. And I can understand that, that uh, reaction. But biblically speaking, there is a correlation between Christian life and good works that's undeniable. Good lives, uh, a good work is a part of a good Christian life. Okay, but we have to understand the relationship to salvation. That's where it gets tricky. Because on one side of the coin, some might say, I've done too many bad things in my life that I'm irredeemable, that God doesn't want me and God can't do anything to me. That is a lie. That is false. God's grace is unending. On the other side of the coin, you might say, I've done enough good things that God now must accept me, that he must give me heaven. That is also a lie. We understand the, the relationship between the Christian life and good works is spelled out pretty clearly in Ephesians 2. We read that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this not from ourselves, but is the gift of God, and not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, good works are not tied to our salvation in any way before. It's not a precursor, but it's actually after. It's a result of our salvation that God now makes us into new people with good works that he entrusts us to do. And it's really just about taking advantage of the opportunities that God has given you. But part of growing in a Christian is bearing that fruit through the good works that God has prepared for you. We also know that it means growing in the knowledge of God. And, and this isn't the knowledge in the sense of salvation, but, but after you come to faith in Jesus, that you continue to grow in God, knowing his character and knowing God personally. We often put God in this little box and we, we think that we've figured him out. 
And these are the rules for God. These are all the theological statements that we know God is and isn't. And, and we can know a lot about God, but we must understand that we can never know all about God. Knowing God is a lifelong process. And we'll never know him fully here. But those growing in Christ continue to grow in their knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9 tells us that, well, the Lord says that let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength. Now the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these kind of people, I delight. A growing Christian continues to grow in their knowledge of God. And that's the importance and why we've taken uh, our, our uh, church-wide efforts to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe some of you are still staying strong in that plan. If not, it's time to jump back in. To be in the Word every day to know more about the character of God because it will change your life. And through that, when we know more about God, it can strengthen us in times of adversity. Verse 11. That being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now this is a sign of a mature Christian. One who doesn't just throw in the towel when things get tough, but they stick through it and they draw on the strength that only God can give. And Jesus told us about some of, these, uh, some of these false Christians, in a sense, in the parable of the soils, that there's some seed, and the gospel might fall on the rocky soil, and this represents a person who looks like they're growing quickly. But when the sun comes out, or when hardships of life happen, they wither away, because they weren't rooted deeply in Jesus. Jesus was not at the center of their life. But a growing Christian is one who can make it through these tough times. Now, God never told us it would be easy. There will be trials. There will be temptations. But he did tell us it would be possible. And he did tell us it would be worth it. And we can have joy through all of those things because of the strength that Christ gives us. That's the true mark of a growing Christian is one who doesn't give up. That they receive the strength from the Lord and they receive the endurance which allows us to make it through those long stretches filled with hardships. That we're continually strengthened in Him. And that we have the patience which is a fruit of the Spirit. That we don't retaliate against those who do wrong to us. But that we continue through. Now, this is different, again, from anything we see in the world, who says the center of your life should be comfort and satisfaction and control over all circumstances. But Christ-centered growth is one that tells us we should have strength and endurance and patience when life is hard. We will face those trials. We may even face persecution. We will be tempted, but through God's strength, we can make it through all things. And we can make it through whatever comes our way. Because in the end, we understand what happens. And that's the last virtue or the last characteristic we see here. Is we're to exemplify joyful thanksgiving for our salvation. 
No matter what happens to you in this life, if you are a Christian, your true life begins when this life ends. That salvation, that life in heaven is the true gift of God, and we should always be thankful for it and never take it for granted. There's a great joy in our salvation, and sometimes we can lose track of that. We get swept up in the things that affect us day to day, and that's why we often need to pray the same way that David did, that, we, that, he, that God would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. But we find great joy in this when we understand how it came to us. And, and first we understand uh, that God, the Father, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people. This is really important to understand. And we think about qualifying for something. It means you have some sort of standard that's above and beyond others, that you may participate in something. I, I think about the Olympics that are coming up this summer. And I love watching the Summer Olympics especially because there's such a diversity of things that people can be good at. And some of them are going to be the best in the world. And you have everything from kayaking to mountain biking to ping pong to synchronized swimming to speed walking, which just looks ridiculous, but some people are really good at it. But to get there, they need to qualify. They need to show that they're above the rest. What we read is that we don't qualify ourselves for heaven, but God has qualified, past tense, us for heaven. It's not us. It's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's all we need for heaven is faith in what he did. That it leads to us being rescued. And this means being transferred from one place to another. That we're rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have this new life in Christ. That once we were slaves to sin, but now we're set free. We're already delivered from that. We just need to live it out. We can have joyful thanks for that. That we're redeemed. And this, to be... To be redeemed means that you're bought back. We understand that Jesus paid the price for us on the cross. We were once slaves again, and the price for that slavery was death. Jesus paid that. And now we can live in him because we're forgiven. That's the last word we see in verse 14. We're forgiven, which literally means to cancel the debt. That through Jesus, God has canceled the debt of our sin, a debt we could never repay. But Jesus did it for us through his grace. Characteristic of, of a growing Christian is one who always understands that and does not feel entitled or owed to any of it, but we're joyfully thankful for all God has done. When we think about these things, we understand that the Jesus-centered life comes with a variety of things, and there's, there's many ways it plays out for us. But the key takeaways today is that as Jesus is at the center of our life, we should can be, be continually praying for those around us. We're going to want them to have the same thing we have. And there's significant impact, eternal impact, the likes of which we can never truly know. But continue to pray for those around you and pray without ceasing, that Paul tells us. And that means that it should come as natural to you as breathing does. Ask those around you, how can I pray for you? Let them know and encourage them, I have been praying for you. We also know that the only way to the Christian life, the only way to grow as a Christian is to hear and understand 
the gospel. That's the true foundation in the beginning of it all. It's the same here as it is everywhere in the world and has always been. The message has not changed. And there's no substitutes. There's no additions, no subtractions. You don't need to spice up the gospel. All of you are equipped to share it. And the only way we can bring more people into the kingdom of God is by sharing that gospel, the good news of Jesus. God revealed his truth to us. And now we have the opportunity to share it. It was the marching orders he gave to the disciples after he resurrected from the dead to go and make disciples throughout the whole world. And that's worked now for over 2,000 years. So don't break the chain. Keep sharing the good news of Jesus and be a part of his worldwide effort. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the ability to grow in you. And God, we at times try to make it so complicated, but it's quite simple. God, we have sinned. We deserve death. And there's nothing we can do to cancel that, but God, you did it for us. You came to this life. You lived the perfect life. You died our death, and you rose, and you conquered that death, that you can go to heaven. And God, you're going to come back again, and you're going to bring us with you. That is good news. And all we have to do is believe that you did that. Believe that you are Lord. So, God, I pray for anyone here today who has not believed that, that they would center their life around you, around the work you did, but more, uh, more accurately, the work you're going to do in all of us when we believe in you. So, God, I just pray now that your kingdom would grow, that we'd be a part of that kingdom growth, that we continually, through our lives, express this truth, this gospel, this good news. But God, we give you joyful thanks for all you did, for the salvation you've given us. And God, we pray that you receive all the glory, that you are magnified in that. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.